I'm Suzanne. I've been a part of this church since I was 10, I think. <laughs> um, I won't say how long that ago, ago that was. Um, and the last 11 and a half years I've been in, in Guatemala. Um, and I'm Anne Potter's daughter, for those who knew and know her but don't know me. Um, and then I, I come back occasionally and, um, and share. And it's really great to be back and, uh, and to be part of the family, part of the community. Um, in, uh, in the newsletter, an aide said I, I um, have been working with Latinlink and uh, part of my role has been looking after new volunteers and new members of Latinlink in Guatemala. Actually, my role is, uh, is changing at the moment and I've passed that on to somebody else and I'm going to be focusing much more on um, uh, mobilising the church in Guatemala to send missionaries. So part of that will be the kind of application process for Guatemalans leaving and accompanying them in that process. Um, but also working with churches um, and helping them to kind of gain a greater vision for mission. Um, and then I'm also part of the, our international uh, kind of leadership team in Latinic. And I'm going to speak a bit about some of the things I'm going to do. Um, but today I'm going to talk about migration. Um, actually, I'll just go back. <laughs> Not yet. Um, so obviously... You know, we think about migration, and probably in the media at the moment, there is a certain uh, image or certain um, connotations that go with that word uh, that might not be positive. Um, but actually, the word means anyone who lives in a country that's different to where they were born. So that might include several people here. Um, and obviously, the image we see in the media is of people who are escaping something, escaping violence or war maybe economic hardship or environmental disasters or threats of some sort. Um, but the word migrant also includes international students and maybe professionals who, who work abroad, what is sometimes classed as expats, and missionaries as well. So missionaries are all migrants too. And there's a different motivations um, and a whole range of different perceived level of choice in all of that. So obviously, an international student would have chosen, uh, chosen that move. Somebody who's escaping from a war uh, would see that they really had no choice in it. Um, but with all those different motivations and different aspects of it, um, there are similar experiences of loss, disorientation, and then hopefully an adaptation to a new place. Um, and, but all those things happen at various, various different levels and, uh, and, it's a, and it can be a long process. Um, so in recent years, we've seen a huge global migration movements and uh, here in Europe, the influx of migrant, mig migrants may have kind of dropped off the news agenda. There might have been something else going on that we're talking about. Um, but it's still ongoing. Um, um, there are also significant migration movements in and through Latin America, which might not have got to the news over here. So um, I'm going to tell you a bit about that. Um, so Venezuela, so it's got uh, an economic and political situation which has created hyperinflation and shortages of very basic food and medicines. And in the last three or four years, three million Venezuelans have left their country. Um, there's some statistics up there. At least, at least a million are in Colombia. Many of them will go to Colombia first. Some will stay, and others carry on that journey uh, to other places. And many of that, they, they do that journey by on foot. Um, 
I was in Colombia earlier this year and met some of our Latinx members who are working amongst Venezuelan mi migrants. And most of them were telling me that their, their journey was something like ni nine days' walk to, to Bogota, the capital of Colombia. Um, and that's often... Um, Venezuelans mostly live on the coast, so it's a very tropical climate. And to, the main way uh, across into Colombia and to Bogota is through a high mountain pass um, with very little um, towns. And actually, most of them are simply unprepared for the climate, never mind the walk and, and everything else that goes with it. Um, and then in Central America, the other story... Uh, between three and 400,000 people travel through Central America on their way to the States. Um, and that group is made up of... of oh, that's not really... That might be my photo, not the focus. Um, that, it's made up of Central Americans, but also people from Haiti and African countries, or even places like Syria. And uh, for many African nationalities, you, um, you can fly to somewhere like Ecuador... There's one or two countries in South America, like Ecuador, who, who have very um, kind of low requirements for, for, get, for getting in, essentially. Um, so they fly there and then continue their, their journey on land northwards, and many of them walking. Um, and the normal route, and, and this is particularly for Central Americans who go to the States, would go... Um, Um, through, through Central America and then through Mexico and hitching a ride. You can't quite see that. That's on top of a train. There's a, a network of freight trains that go... These are not passenger trains, but freight trains that go through Mexico. This, it's, called, it's nicknamed La Bestia, which means the beast. So, and Mexico is enormous, by the way. <laughs> it's a long way. Um, so the dangers of violence and extortion along the way, but also simply falling off the top of the train. Um, and at and, and the Mexico-US border, they, the people then often pay coyotes, what they call it, or traffickers, who would then kind of guide them across the border. That might mean crossing the river, which makes up much of the border, um, either wading through it or on rafts, or using a network of tunnels, or through the desert. So you can imagine all the dangers involved in that, and many people don't make it. Um, so this year, or last year, saw two different migrant caravans leaving Honduras and making their way uh, to the US border. And another caravan started um, this April. Um, and as you can see, well, I've talked about La Bestia and crossing into Mexico illegally, um, and all the dangers involved in that. It's no wonder people want to join a caravan, which is then seen as, as safer. <laughs> so this is uh, uh, coming from El Salvador, I think. So most of these, two or three of the caravans started out in San Pedro Sula um, and uh, were often joined by other groups from, from El Salvador and Guatemala along the way. Um, it started off about 1,000 people. It was often more like four or 5,000 by, by the time they were going through the Mexico. Um, and they leave often because of specific threats from gang violence um, and, and all the other kind of aspects of poverty that go around that. Actually, climate change is an underlying factor in all of that as well because many rural uh, people find it much more difficult to, to make a living off the land anymore. 
Um, and so they go to the cities thinking they can find jobs, um, but, uh, but they can't, and then get um, uh, kind of under threat from the gang's violence. So thousands travel together, uh, knowing that this is safer than going alone, and most of them planned to enter the U.S. to apply for asylum. But actually, the U.S. government doesn't uh, recognize uh, gang violence or the threat of gang violence um, as a reason for asylum. Um, Latin people from Central America may or may not have known that, um, but their their culture is very kind of optimistic and spontaneous. So they'll kind of go anyway and hope for the best. Um, some of them, mostly on foot, some of them will hitch a ride on a lorry like that for some of the way. Um, this was at the border, the Guatemala-Mexico border. Um, Central Americans need a visa to enter Mexico, so they were stopped there. But there were many delays, and lot, so many people that um, many of them pushed through and just carried on without the proper paperwork. So then they continued to walk across Mexico. This will be uh, the uh, Mexico-US border. And you might be able to guess some of the response from US authorities. Um, Trump sent in the troops to the border. He also told Mexico to control the problem from the southern border. And, threatened, and did all sorts of threats about kind of economic trading stuff. Um, he also threatened to cut off all the USA to Guatemala, El Salvador, and, and Honduras if they didn't stop people leaving, basically. Um, and then they've done, in the last few months, they've done a number of things, uh, like the limit the number of asylum applications they process at each border, which is something like maybe 10 a day when there are hundreds arriving every day. Um, they also have a policy of separating children from their parents at the border and keeping them in, in children, child detention centres with very limited supplies. Um, and then there's been crackdowns and de deportations of, of illegal migrants living in the States already. Um, just last month, uh, the Guatemalan president, Jimmy Morales, who's got five or six months left in his um, presidency, he signed an agreement with the US to make Guatemala a safe third country. Uh, apparently that means that anyone who arrives at the US border can be transported back to Guatemala to apply for asylum from there, and in the meantime, be supported by the Guatemalan government. Um, Jimmy uh, signed this without any agreement or any of the usual checks and processes through Congress and things like that, so I'm not sure whether it's gonna stand. Um, but certainly, uh, Guatemala isn't really in a position to be uh, Third country to provide for a large number of migrants. It's also not a safe country either. And uh, people who are specifically uh, escaping from gang threats in Honduras and El Salvador, all those gangs are connected. So actually, that doesn't, um, it doesn't, it's not a safe place uh, for that either. So for all these people who have been um, moving through Central America, initially there was quite a lot of support for them. Um, I saw one interview on the news where a woman said, she was from Honduras, and she said it was the first time in months that she'd been ever able to have more than one meal a day for her and her children, because so many people had, had given them uh, food along the way. Um, but attitude, as you can imagine, attitudes begin to change, um, especially when caravans are stopped at borders, and particularly in border towns, when you've got hundreds and thousands, four months on end, um, so uh, that can be a very difficult 
situation. Um, and the church in Guatemala in general is kind of asleep on this issue, really. <laughs> it's not sure how to respond or if they should respond in any way. Um, so over the next year, I'll be coordinating. Uh, we're planning a, a three-day conference for pastors and church leaders um, in Guatemala, helping us to reflect on what does the Bible say about migration and how do we respond. Uh, the conference is in July next year. It's going to be called God's Mission in the Context of Global Migration. We've got a number, we've confirmed a number of speakers, including Chris Wright from here in the UK. Um, you might have heard of him. Um, so uh, if you're uh, a prayer, um, please pray for that over the next year. That's going to be a big part of my, my work uh, over the next year, so planning and coordinating that. Um, and then in my international role, um, we're sort of, we've decided to have a, a focus on migration next year as well. And so we're looking at new ways of working uh, within this area of work and recruiting new people to work amongst migrants. And that might be migrant communities in Latin America. So as I've said, like, uh, Venezuelans in Colombia, um, the Central Americans coming through uh, Guatemala and Mexico, but also this, the uh, groups that are already settled there. So there's, um, there's a chi Chinese community in every country in Latin America, um, a large Japanese community in Brazil, um, as well as Syrians. There's quite a lot of Syrians in, in Brazil. So all of those things. Um, but at the same time, we're also looking at what about the Latin American migrants anywhere else, and how do we work amongst them? Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be in Germany meeting with our Europe team leaders, and we'll be specifically thinking about this, and reflecting together and planning how can our teams uh, in Europe support the Latin American communities already here. Uh, so please pray for me in that. But all of that, of course, has to be based on some kind of biblical reflection about what does the Bible say about migration and what are the purposes God has through this. Um, and migration is not a surprise to God. Um, he's been using it for his purposes throughout all the history of the Bible and throughout all human history. And he's still doing that today. So God has purposes in that. Um, if you've been a Christian for a while and I asked you, um, you, you know, what do you think God might say? What does the Bible say about migration? What would you say? Moses, Moses yeah, that was good migration. Jesus would say, Me too. Me too, yes, yeah. Uh huh. So there's lots of examples of migrants. What does he say about our response to it? What does the Bible? What are the themes in the Bible about our response to? Feed the hungry and clothe the poor. Okay, meet their needs. Yeah. Welcome the stranger. Welcome the stranger. Yeah. Cup of water. Yeah. Jesus talked of that. Yeah, all of those things are right. You you can probably think about you know our our responsibility of compassion, of hospitality, meeting the needs of, of migrants. And all of that is, uh, is there. In fact, the Old Testament is full of instructions to care, and this, this phrase comes up several times, to care for the foreigner in your midst and to treat them well. Um, but often, in our rush to think, oh, this is happening, this is a problem, what do we do? And we can just kind of get on with that, meeting people's needs, helping where we can, and perhaps with a bit of a savior complex, they're the ones with needs. We might have the answers, 
it all works out. But actually, when we have a bit of a closer look at the Bible, uh, we're going to see a, a subtly different message. And it might not be different in the resulting actions, but actually it's quite different in the motivation. And so we're going to look at a couple of verses quickly. Um, so this is Exodus 22:21. You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. In Leviticus, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not ill-treat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And then Deuteronomy. So you too must show love to foreigners, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. So what do we notice there about God's instructions to the Israelites? Or what do, we, what do we think might be missing there that we might have expected? Yeah, that's right. It's the, he talks about us or the Israelites being migrants. What's interesting for me is that he doesn't ever mention their needs, the migrants' needs or the foreigners' needs. He doesn't ever say... Um, you must treat them well because they've lost their home or because you can give them a job so they can feed their family. He doesn't ever talk about their needs. The reason he says, God says that the Israelites should help is because they were also migrants and foreigners. And he repeatedly reminds them that that is part of their identity. It wasn't because, and that wasn't because they had physically migrated very recently. Uh, it might have been a few generations before them. But God reminded them because it was part of who they were, part of who, their identity. Um, and later on, we get to David. We're going to read a bit from Chronicles. And by that stage, Israel has settled down in the land uh, for many years. They've built cities. David's got his palace and great wealth. Um, and towards the end of his life, he collects all these resources and treasures in, in preparation to build the temple. And it's actually Solomon, his son, that does the building. But he collects all, this, all the materials and treasures. And then he sort of prays this prayer of kind of dedication. And uh, within that, he says, But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. We are here for only a moment, visitors and strangers, in the land as our ancestors were before us. Our days on earth are like a passing shadow, gone so soon without a trace. And I think David understood what God had said to the Israelites previously. He understood that his identity was as a migrant, as a stranger, as a temporary visitor. And um, he, he was in a position where he could have looked at all his wealth and all his influence and thought that he had earned it and that he had the right to do whatever he wanted with it. But actually, he recognized that it was all on loan from God. Um, and then we're going to uh, move to Hebrews. And actually, if you've got Bibles and want to have a look at this, um, we're going to read uh, a bit more from Hebrews. So Hebrews 11. So you might know that Hebrews 11... Uh, is a whole chapter talking about these great examples uh, of faith from the Old Testament. And we're going to look at a part of that. Uh, 
and, uh, and try to learn some lessons from, from the migrants. So I'm going to read from uh, Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10, and then 13 to 16. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going, and even when he reached the land, God promised him, when, sorry, and even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and, Jap- and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. And then verse 13. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, People who say such thing are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for, for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this, is, this seems to sort of interpret the actions of Abraham and, and the others. Um, So on the surface, they were migrants. Abraham did get to the place where he was going, but he lived there by faith, like a foreigner living in tents. Um, So on the surface, they were migrants, but actually underneath, they recognized a completely different sort of citizenship, a different sort of identity, and a different sort of home. So when we look at the terms that are used here, heavenly homeland, city... Uh, with eternal foundations in verse 10, designed and, by, by, and built by God. So these are all about a, a different place, and not an earthly place, but a different kind of citizenship. And for those of you who are migrants or have a, an experience of migration, you might recognize this, this process of losing a sense of home, or at least that concept changing, what it actually means. Um, people often ask missionaries, people often ask me about whether a new place now feels like home or talk about, oh, you must be glad to be home, back home. Or, uh, and the home has a very uh, evocative um, sense to it. And I, th- I actually think it's quite a difficult question to answer because it's not necessarily a, a particular place that gives a sense of home. Um, I think when you move across cultures, the whole concept of home can change. Um, and we started off the service today reminiscing a bit about what, was, what went on before. And it, it's great to celebrate that. But actually, if we went back, if we went back it wouldn't be the same. <laughs> things change. And it's great to celebrate, but God is doing new things. Um, so it's no longer about a particular place. Um, but rather about a feeling of belonging and acceptance. And that's not even really about familiarity. (laughs) I have this problem in Spanish, and my excuse is it's not my language, but anyway. (laughs) Familiarity, is that right? Yes. (laughs) 
So it's not even about the things that are familiar. <laughs> it's deeper than that. Um, and what Hebrews tells us here is that it's about our connection with God uh, rather than a connection with a place. It's about this inheritance, this identity in God, our citizenship of the kingdom of God. And it even mentions in verse uh, 15 the kind of option or the possibility of going back. Um, you know, if they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. Um, but they were actually longing for something different to the place. Um, I've lost myself. Okay. So that, that home and identity is more to do with God than the physical place. And a home, in that sense, is where we are welcomed and loved and accepted even in a place where we are not known yet. Have you ever ever had that experience of feeling very welcomed, even when people don't know you? Um, And the author of of Hebrews, this this is history for them. He's telling the Hebrews, this would have passed, you know, Abraham and Isaac, that was a few thousand years before. But he's still reminding them of it because it's relevant to them. He's reminding the early church that they are still migrants looking for a home in God rather than in a land. And I think that goes for us today too. We, the the spiritual descendants of Abraham, are migrants looking for a home in God, looking for a citizenship that isn't about politics or borders or national identities. So being migrant is a part of our identity as the people of God. So then our response to migrants today shouldn't be based on a saviour complex in which I, in my abundance and settledness, can help them in their need and in their journey. But rather, it should be a response of standing alongside because we we are actually in the same boat. Because we can learn... Um, from migrants and their experience. We can actually learn something more of our identity, something deeper of our identity in God through listening to migrants and their experience. So I'm going to go through a couple of things and ask us to reflect on a few questions that I think areas of which we, I think we can learn from migrants. Um, how would seeing myself as a migrant change the way I hold on to or, um, or use or let go of possessions? How would seeing myself as a migrant change the way I hold on to possessions? Um, I shared a video on Facebook last week. Um, it was actually in Spanish. It was the UN Refugee Agency um, released a short video, and it was interviews with various Venezuelan migrants uh, at different stages of the journey into Colombia. And they just asked two questions. Uh, the first one was, uh, "What did you bring? What did they bring with them from Venezuela?" And as I said earlier, most of them would have walked that journey, um, probably nine or ten days. And so the answers were some clothes, some food for the journey. One guy talked about his values that he had brought. Another woman uh, said she brought her recipes ready to work. Um, Others talked about the family members that had come with them. 
Actually, when I was in Colombia this year, I met a woman who had come just the week before with 14 grandchildren. And she'd made the journey with 14 of her grandchildren to meet her, some of her children who'd already got to Colombia. Um, and then the, then the next question, and as you can see, most of them were traveling with you know, one suitcase or a, or a backpack. And then the next question was, what would you have liked to bring if you could have done? And then there's lots of silences and tears welling up. And not one of them mention any material possession. Not one of them. They talk about other family members, their children, their grandparents who were too old or ill to travel. Not one of them mentioned any thing. And we could go back to uh, Chronicles, which we looked at earlier. David said, everything we have has come from you. Talking to God, praying to God, everything we have has come from God. And it's interesting that that was part of, um, that was the, it, just the sentence before him saying, we are here for only a moment, visitors and strangers in the land. And these things are connected. Part of him recognizing himself as a visitor or a migrant was also recognizing that everything he has was from God and just on loan to us. So how would really living in that truth of our identity as a migrant, how would that affect the way that I hold on to or use what God has loaned me? So just let God speak to your heart for a moment. What can we learn from the migrants? They brought what they needed for the journey, their values, prepared to work, but they left a lot of stuff behind. And please don't misunderstand, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with having stuff and having possessions, but we are responsible for the way in which we use it uh, and use what God has entrusted to us. So how would living as a migrant, seeing yourself as a migrant, change the way you hold on to possessions? Then another question. How does my identity as a migrant change the way I offer hospitality to strangers? So this is a photo um, of a volunteer welcoming migrants in Greece. And it may be that for most of us, we're not going to be in situations like that where physically welcoming an actual migrant off a boat but I imagine that all of us, probably every day, meet people who may feel that they don't fit in, who feel that they are unwanted or unwelcome, and for a whole range of reasons. So how can I be a living message of the welcome and acceptance that God offers? How can I offer hospitality to strangers? Um, Although we need to be clear about what hospitality is. Um, my, my church in, in London has a hospitality team. And they're the ones who are good at baking cakes. <laughs> and whenever there's an event, they've got nice tables and um, occasionally doilies, but nice kind of displays and things like that. And all very nice. 
But that is not primarily what hospitality is about. <laughs> it's not about nice, trendy decor, or even about providing food, or having a clean house to bring people to, um, although all of those things might be involved. But the key in the Bible, the concept of hospitality, is about the attitude of welcome and acceptance, regardless of whether the person is similar to us or not, regardless whether we know anything about them. But it's an attitude of welcome. And that is always a process of opening ourselves up. Um, it's, It's almost like an embrace. You have to open yourself in order to welcome somebody else in. And I think this picture... Um, for me, it kind of it says something about the value of our hospitality is in communicating something that says, "Welcome, you're safe now." And sometimes that might be physical safety, but more often than not, it's about welcome, you're safe here to tell your story, to be yourself, and that. Um, And that kind of welcome that we can give is us being uh, Jesus' hands and feet in him welcoming, in God welcoming each person. So it can be a glimpse of the welcome that that, that people can find in God and can be in a first experience on their journey to find their own identity in him. So ponder on that question too. How can I... Or how does my identity as a migrant change the way I offer hospitality? And this hospitality, uh, we we saw earlier that God reminds the Israelites of their identity as migrants to encourage them in their welcome of others. But it's not based on a presumption of having our lives sorted out and being in a better position and being able to fix other people. Uh, But rather it's based on a recognition that we are all the same. We all are migrants looking for a home in God. So this welcome is, is uh, welcome. You're safe to tell your story. Uh, not so that I can fix you and give you all the answers, but you're safe to tell your story so that I can hear you and learn from you. Because we are all looking for that welcome from God to know and to know our identity in him. A place or a country will not provide that. And a good job, a nice family, or the perfect partner, none of that will provide it either. We only truly find our identity in God. So we offer hospitality humbly, recognizing that we have much to learn. So you uh, encourage you to reflect on that question, but not only as an individual, but actually maybe in your house group, mission community group, how can you as a group show God's welcome and acceptance? And as a whole church too. And I know um, this church is great at welcoming new people, welcoming people who may feel different. Um, and that's why often why we have the open church as well. But what are other ways in which we can be a community that welcomes, that offers hospitality, but the hospitality of God And then one final question, which is kind of the flip side. How does my identity as a migrant change the way that I accept help? Um, 
again, when I was in Colombia, I met a Venezuelan guy who, who um, was part of the church project there. And he had been a Christian for most of his life um, and been involved in kind of church leadership. And he said uh, that, that last year in which he traveled to Colombia, uh, he said he had learned humility like never before. And humility is a good place to be with God. <laughs> um, but look, one of the factors in leaving behind our stuff is trusting that God can and will provide for all our needs. It's letting go of our ego and presumption that I can control things. It's, uh, it's, it's always interesting coming, coming back home um, and the, the society, our Western kind of society, uh, we have many things that we love, like planning and risk assessments and uh, self-sufficiency and the weather app, so you know when to put your washing out, and um, in insurance and all of those kind of things. And all of that is an attempt to control and master what is actually outside of our control. Um, and we fool ourselves we fool ourselves that we can control it. And uh, I think often we need to accept that we are not in control, but we can trust God. And in our need and vulnerability, we will see God provide, and often through other people, if we are able to accept it. So how does my identity as a migrant change the way that I accept help from others? So um, that's all I've got to say, really. <laughs> um, so the main, to recap, being a migrant is part of our identity. Um, and I think it would be good for us to just have a few minutes of just talking to somebody next to you and just reflecting together about um, how does that make you feel to be told that you're a migrant? <laughs> how do you feel about that? What's your reaction to that? And then reflect on the three questions. How does that affect how you hold on to possessions? How does it affect how you offer hospitality? And how does it affect how you accept help? So I'd encourage you to talk to the, next, to, to the person next to you for a few minutes. Uh, it may be one question has resonated with you more than the others. Um, and so we'll just have a few minutes for that. And uh, then I think... Something else will be happening. <laughs> Thank you.